Welcome to another episode of the Destination Linux Podcast. Welcome to episode 84 of Destination Linux. I'm Rob. What? And yes, that's my real name, but you can still call me Mr. Zeb. And with me today is Ryan. Ryan, what have you been up to this week? I can't believe your real name's Rob. This right. is crazy. This is right. craziness. This is going to throw everybody for a loop. I'm going to still call you Zeb or PZ. Mm-hmm. But That's this fine. week, look, I got my hands on a 2016 Dell XPS 13 with, and this is the critical part here, the Infinity Display. I've been wanting to get one of these ever since I saw one at Southeast Linux Fest. This has an i5-6500U, 8 gigabytes of RAM. I purchased it on eBay because I don't want to, couldn't talk the wife into the brand new 2018 developer edition version of the XPS 13. But I, of course, took Windows off it immediately. <clears throat> it you didn't survive like on it. 10 minutes on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did blame Rocco, of course. And my wife bought it again. I said, Rocco made fun of my old laptop and I have to have a new one. So the, the MacBook Pro 2012 is gone because I have to switch hardware out to keep the funds the same. And the 2016 Dell XPS is in. Now, you guys know I've had a lot of laptops. You don't even know how half of them I've had before. Alienwares, I've had uh, System76 laptops, the Clevos. I've had the uh, HP laptops, the MacBook Pros, and all that. And I love the way the MacBook was the aluminum frame, very thin backlit keyboard, beautiful retina screen. All of those things made me utilize it. Of course, I put Linux on it. But this Dell XPS 13 is my favorite laptop I think I have ever owned. It is incredibly thin. It has the aluminum frame, but they also put a nice rubberized material over the keyboard area to keep that nice and soft. It has the backlit keyboard. The keyboard is very clicky and responsive, not cheap feeling. There's no bend to it. Of course, you got that single aluminum frame unibody in there to keep that from happening. Uh, The screen is full HD screen, absolutely beautiful colors. And the infinity edge means all of that border around the typical laptop that you have is gone. You've got this teeny tiny border there instead that goes around. So there's none of that. And I'm telling you, the second you pull this laptop out and start using it, it just feels right. Mm -hmm. This is an incredible piece of hardware. Dell has really stepped up their game. Like the whole dude, I'm getting a Dell error was, I always made fun of it. Like, dude, I'll never get a Dell, but I was wrong because <laughs> these new Dells are something to be really uh, coveted and enjoyed because this is one of the best laptops I've held in my hand in a long time. All right. Are we so going to be able to watch a review on this, this laptop? You've got it. I'm going to be doing a review on my channel of this laptop and I've tried several different distros on it, but right now it is running Mint XFCE. Oh, Yep. So there you go. So this Infinity Edge, is that something that they've picked up from the phones? The screen's getting bigger and bigger and the bezel's becoming less and less? Or had they thought of it before the phones started doing it? I don't think they thought of it before the phones started doing it, but they certainly picked up on it. And yeah, getting rid of that bezel, like I think we talked about this a few episodes ago too, it seemed like it doesn't matter. Like who cares if the bezel's this big as long as my screen's 13 inches diagonally across, right? Yeah. But I'm telling you, it the engaging experience that you have not having that bezel there is, it just seems like you, um, the visuals pop more. 
and yeah. there's less it, distraction around it. It engages you. Yeah, you feel like you have this. This it's like a window to that thing rather than like just being co- encompassed by a whole wall kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's an interesting experience. Like I have a monitor that has like a very small bevel bezel, and uh, the other ones that are not next to it are gigantic. So it's 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 a different experience for sure. Yeah, but um, it's it's uh, there's actually like that those those laptops are are so slick. I actually got to use one uh, recently, and it was it was like. This thing does looks too good to be a Linux-based system, right? Yeah, it, it's gorgeous, and there's no heat. Like the one thing about the MacBook I did not like is the way they did the cooling. The heat all comes out from underneath where the screen would fold right against that corner there. All the heat pours out of that area, and because of that, it gets super hot if you're doing gaming or anything else. With this XPS, it's just as thin. By the way, you don't need dongles; it actually has ports. Imagine <laughs> that, Apple, and. <laughs> you don't have that heat dissipation issue because it has slots all around the back of it. So your heat going out where it should. Uh, yeah. You're going to see the review on it. I've just, I did it. not know Dell created stuff this good. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. So also with us this week is Michael. So Michael, tell us about your week. Uh, I had an interesting week and one of the things I did, I went to a local Linux meetup and uh, I haven't been to one of those in a while. I've gone to conferences, but you know I don't often go to these these meetups. And I found out that that's kind of the case for a lot of people in this particular meetup. It was <laughs> didn't have a very high turnout. And when I was deciding I wanted to go, I decided to use some of my marketing voodoo and uh, get as many people to show up as possible. And I'm happy to say that I increased 300% attendance. Now, that's not a lot because it's still less than 10, but there was not that many in the first place, so that just sounds better. But... Uh, one of the things that was really interesting about it, there was a situation where I decided to ask a question that I expected the answer to be pretty high percentage. Of this Linux local uh, local Linux group, the enthusiasts of Linux, how many were using their uh, Linux as their desktop operating system? The answer was me. That's it. Wow, you're kidding yeah. me. Mm-mm. Nobody else was using it? One guy said it was he was dual booting, but he was main his, his main was Windows, so that was the closest. So wait a minute, could... it's a Linux meetup, mm-hmm. <laughs> but nobody uses Linux. Correct. It was wow. re- it was really weird. I did not expect that at all, and I like was talking to some guy who was who was supposed to show up, and he actually did use it on his desktop. He told me, and I told him about this story, and he was like, "Oh, well, we would have had two if I'd have shown up," but uh, he's like, "We're gonna try to." It's actually interesting because it gives an opportunity to potentially convince people who are already familiar with Linux and fans of Linux. Did to... you convince anyone? Well, I didn't have enough time because I also didn't have anything to show them because it was like I don't have a distro or any kind of like laptop with me at the time to show them because I was just going to be there to converse, to have a conversation, and I didn't expect you know I didn't expect an enthusiast group for Linux to not have Linux and not have experienced it. And I actually asked a couple of them had they ever done it, and they said no. Like, wow. Like that's, that's super it's interesting. Like weird. It'd be like, I don't know, going to, um, a He-Man convention or what would we talk about? A Thundercat convention and like, so who's seen Thundercats? None of us. Then why are you here? <laughs> exactly. why, why are you here at this convention if you don't do the thing that is about, but I guess you're right. It is an opportunity to convince yeah. more people. Look at the positive um, side. 
Thankfully, we don't suffer from that. And uh, some of our users, if not most of our users, users are Linux users. Yeah. And they send us um, some emails. So, Ryan, tell us about the email we got this week. So we got another awesome email. And this one has a question in it. And so the challenge here is who can come up with the best answer to this user's question. Many thanks for your great podcast, Ryan. Okay, uh, I added I the Ryan part yeah, in there. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, that was it. It was just great podcast. My bad. Uh, it's a trusted <laughs> companion when looking at the taillights of the car in front of me every day when I drive to work. I love hearing that people listen to us to help create the commutes and make them less painful because I used to commute two hours each way and I needed things like that to make commutes less painful myself. My question may be stupid, but Google doesn't give me a direct answer to following question. So let me help you starting there. Use DuckDuckGo instead of Google. Um, yep. That will be much better for you. Then for I sure. want to reinstall my Linux Mint. When I make a backup of all my files from home onto an educated guest like uh, ext4 USB drive copy paste, then I nuke the Mint install and reinstall from scratch. When I then restore the backed up home data files, what happens with the rights on the file as far as ownership and file permissions go? Are they being brought across the original install or are they set correctly for the new install? Are there backup tools which make sure the file permissions are set correctly when restored on my new system? Many thanks in advance for your help with kind regards. So I'm going to give my answer first mm -hmm. that, I, that I wrote down when I saw this, which also happens to be far more complex than the answers you're going to hear from Michael <laughs> and Zeb. So my answer I put is, you can copy and paste and preserve the file ownership using CP with the dash P on it. So copy with the dash P switch to preserve the attributes when you're copying. Another option with the current process is just change the permissions afterwards using CHO and minus R. Make the recursive changes for ownership. Sure. But... My method is way more difficult. And when I saw your guys' answers, I was like, wow, that sucks. <laughs> so as, as, as Ryan was giving us the answer, I started typing mine was if you're using, if you're going from Mint and you're using Mint and you're using the same username, you could just drag and drop the files and it's the same username. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. It's done. Which I usually use the same username across <laughs> my system. So I was same. like, why did I not think of this? Yeah, because like basically, as long as you don't change, if you change the username, you'll have to deal with uh, changing like what, who owns it, and things like that. But if it's the same one, just drag and drop, you're good. But then Zeb, you came in and showed me up even more here with your easy answer. Well, as soon as he said that he's using Linux Mint and he's wanting to do a backup of critical files and restore them, use Time Shift. Yep. It comes with yeah. Mint. Um, it isn't limited to doing a complete system backup. You can tell it, no, only do this directory or these directories. So you can actually tailor it yourself. So backed up in time shift, restored in time shift. Then you haven't got to worry about any attributes because it's doing it all for you. That's yeah. a good one too. What I think is funny about this is the youngest Linux user, me, the least experienced Linux user of the group comes up with the most complex answer and the most <laughs> experienced Linux users find the simplest ways to get the same thing done. So there you go. That's what experience does for you. Exactly. Okay. So moving right on, we're going up to the uh, distro news for this week. Um, and 
KDE Neon Bionic Preview is ready to test. But be warned, it's only in the beta version. So KDE Neon have at last released an ISO that allows the 1804 LTS base to be used. Um, now, before we go on to uh, my experiences, um, have any of you guys tried it? Well, before the reason why the answer for me is no is I liked KDE Neon. I've played with it before, but I've always been under the impression, Michael, the KDE Neon is not necessarily something you want to use as a desktop or a distro full-time operating system or something you need to rely on. Is that or is that not true? Well, it's it's different. There's different use cases. So it depends on the skill level of the person using it. If you are experienced with Linux and you're experienced with, with bug fixing and, and, and you know taking care of things that you, yourself, you're probably fine with using it. Uh, but it's not meant to be a distro that everyone uses because it's meant to be a distro that is the, like the example of what Plasma is supposed to be type of thing. And an easy access to try it out. Because if you look for like a long period of time when a DE released a new version, there'd be six months to even a year or more before you can even try that version. And by that time that version is out and you can try it, there's already a new version by that DE. So in this case... The, they they kind of wanted to provide their own solution where you could install this, try out the new things, and not necessarily keep it, but um, definitely just try out the new features that are coming. So it's more of like a test bed type of thing or a de demonstration uh, approach rather than everyone should use it. And I think that if you are just wanting to use Plasma and you're not worried about like getting the absolute latest version of a of the DE then Kubuntu is a fantastic solution. And if you update every six months, you're still going to get pretty much the latest version of the KDE anyway. So, uh, for instance, when I was on KDE Neon for a while, and I was loving it, and then one day it just stopped booting. I don't remember what it was. This was months ago. It just stopped working. And I couldn't get in. I couldn't figure out a way to get around it. I assume it had something to do with an NVIDIA patch. Now that I'm on AMD... I don't think I'll run into this issue because I've yet to find a distro to do that again since mm -hmm. I've been on the Vega 64. I've never had a single issue getting into any distro, period. Now, I have bugs that I'll run into with different yeah. programs or stuff, but as far as booting, always boots, always, always, always. So KDE Neon, in that case, it's not a situation in which you shouldn't run it because it's not stable or something like that. It's more like there can be little bugs and things that happen with various programs maybe a panel because they're always on the cutting edge yeah but you could use it as a full-time machine and especially probably being now that i'm on amd wouldn't run into that issue again yeah it's more <laughs> like it's, it's it depends on the user i would say that the most like the def, like the brand new user should definitely go with kubuntu but neon is de is available for anyone who wants to use like the latest version and it also is capable of fixing something if if it if you're if you need a support if anything happens or anything messes up it's better to just go with Kubuntu because you can get support from the community more, much more easily. But I've been using Neon for a very long time, and I have not tried this newest version because I've had the same install of Neon since the first version of Neon came out, and I don't want to risk that because I, I expect <laughs> to totally break my system at that point. But there is something interesting. Even if you are good at fixing something, there are some things you can do that Neon uh, rolls so quickly if you don't keep up with it that you could if you if you don't if you don't have if you wait too long to do an update for neon you could break the system in that way too because they're making let's say for example you have uh, the current version is 5.13 
let's say you go from 12 to 13, you're fine. If you go from 11 to 13, maybe. If you go to 10 to 13, probably going to break. Interesting. And because and I actually have, a, with last week we were talking about how, or not last week, but the two weeks ago we were talking about the uh, episode 82, how I was extreme distro hopping. And the reason I was extreme distro hopping was because Neon was on my laptop and I forgot to upgrade uh, many, many versions of Plasma and it did not boot anymore. Wow. So it was Even just... Even you run into those issues. Well, it was it was also a thing where it said KWIN is not working. Choose a different compositor. Well, the only option is KWIN. <laughs> so Well, choose a different one anyway. <laughs> so this so my I chose KWIN on Kubuntu. <laughs> that was my that was my uh, my choice. So Interesting. So Zeb, what was your experience with KDE Neon? Well, I always come of it come at it, uh, uh, you know, from a different point of view. Michael's the technical guy and you're the, the team red guy. But for me, I'm just a basic user. And because I had had such a good experience with KDE since the very early beta um, of Kubuntu came out, I knew that the base was rock solid. So I just went ahead, installed it. It installed flawlessly. All my programs that I use, and there's not many of them, were working perfectly. I had absolutely no issues with it at all. Um, the theming, I don't think, was as good as Kubuntu, but then that explains it's not there to be the ultimate end-user product. It's meant to be, look, here's this new flashy plasma feature, or yeah. here's this this other bits and pieces that are coming along. So they really do just go, there you go, lump plasma, get on with it. Yeah, it's the <laughs> vanilla approach to plasma. And sometimes mm -hmm. the vanilla approach uh, needs some extra flavoring. Yeah. <laughs> need some chocolate in there. Yeah, you need to put some but, chocolate in there. But as to as to should you not use it as your daily driver, um, that might well have been true when it first came out, but it really has become plasma has stabilized so much now that I can I don't see a problem with using it as a daily driver. It just nice. works. Yeah. It probably would be fine, but it just you know, it, depending on the user, I still say depending on the user. Uh, but I agree, it, it, is, it has gotten to the point of much better stability. Well, we have some more news. You know, I'm on uh, Linux Mint recently. I'm really enjoying Linux Mint and the changes that they made. Take that, Michael. Mint <laughs> has done some beautiful things, and uh, it's absolutely stable. The desktop, by default, is gorgeous. Of course, I talked about having the XFCE. I played with Cinnamon on the Beast and have XFCE on the Dell and the XFCE implementation is rock solid. But Linux Mint also has a version that's based on Debian instead of being based on Ubuntu out there. So I think it's called Cindy, and the beta is out there now for you to download that beta. Has anybody played with the Linux Mint Debian edition? And what are your thoughts? Is it more stable, less stable, the same? It still has the Cinnamon desktop. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I used it way back in the day, probably as far back as 2010 when it first came out as a, just LMDE1. Um, and for me, it was the only one back then that really worked well. So I've got, I've got a love for LMDE, mm. you know, that it, it's really good. I've not tried the, the, the new beta yet. Um, so we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see all that. Cause although it says here, I've installed it and it seems to be running. Okay. That was like two hours before I threw a hissy fit and wiped everything off my system. <laughs> so I didn't, 
that was after having the, the, the AMD debacle and I'm trying to get all the Ryzen drivers off, off my machine. So I didn't really give it a, a run for its money. But if it's as good now as it was back then, then it will be a, a very good distribution to use. Yeah, I, I used I used uh, LMD a long time ago as well, and I haven't used this latest uh, beta version. Um, the, the main thing is, like, if just people should know that if they want to use Mint, they should know that the LMDE, the Debian edition, does not have everything that the Mint version has, mm-hmm. uh, like the regular Mint version, because the, it can't, because it doesn't, like, there's a lot of things that depend on Ubuntu and depend on a PPA system and things like that, where you can't have those things inside of the Debian edition. So you're not going to be able to have all the types of software that you might want. You won't be able to install PPAs and stuff like that. So it's it's really cool that they're doing it because it's interesting to take to to make an option versus that is just pure Debian for people who want that. But just so people know that, that there is a there's a different a, a fairly big difference between the two. So therein lies the question: What is the point of having a Debian base if Ubuntu base has most of the features and most of the Linux experience? So I've used Linux Mint was recommended back when I started in Linux two years ago. I never knew there was a Debian edition. Never, I guess I never looked into it. I didn't know one existed. Uh, this new beta one brought it into light, and I was like, oh, they have a Debian edition. What's different about it? So I installed it. I booted it. It's the Cinnamon desktop. It looks exactly the same. Everything looks exactly the same. There may be some missing packages or programs in there. Uh, I didn't dig into it, playing with it in a virtual box, but... Um, why? Why do you need a Debian version? Well, my understanding is, and I don't know whether it's just rumor and conjecture that's out there, but it's it's almost like a safety net should Ubuntu suddenly disappear overnight. They've got something that's now based on Debian that they could very quickly switch to um, and and carry on producing Linux Mint. Now, like I say, whether that's just a rumor or just something that some smart Alec thought up not sure. but it sounds feasible yeah well i mean i i did research on this because it bothered me i was like well why is there what what am i getting out of this and the only article i could find was from InfoWorld, where this question was posed back in 2016 i guess when this project first kicked off and the quote from the article says i keep wondering if one day the linux mint folks are going to refocus everything on the lmde version that way they could be Debian-based, not Ubuntu-based, and they could be decoupled from the upstream canonical and GNOME shenanigans. They could do the work they want without having to patch or replace anything and have a saner upgrade path. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the upgrade path is men's fault. Uh, so that's that, there's, there's that. But the, the, if you look at the way, like if, it's, if something's based on Ubuntu, uh, it, they, they use the Ubuntu upgrade structure they're perfectly fine. Mint changes the way they package things and which creates the problem between upgrading versus refresh install. So that's a different thing. Uh, as far as being like, I think the, the rumor aspect that, that Zeb said, I mean, sorry, Rob said that is, um, it's probably accurate, but they have never totally said why they did it. They just did it. And, you know, there's probably some truth to the, the idea that they, they would want to have a, a fallback sort of thing. Now, when you think about stability, though, you think about Debian, and someone in the Patreon group mentioned, is it because Debian is more stable? Um, not really. I mean, because you're looking at, yes, I mean, in the terms of, like, stability versus not stability, we also have to talk about the fact that Debian stable has nothing to do with whether it's stable, stability of, like, the of the system itself. The term is really just, it means that it's not going to change much. 
And that's just, that's what that word means in terms of programming and operating systems and computer and software development, period. The word stable in uses of releases has absolutely nothing to do with whether it is stable functionally or not. It's whether we're going to get new releases pretty quickly or not. So like a rolling release by inherently can't be called stable because it doesn't mean that. So the, the actual term is very unfortunate because people use that word. Uh, most people think of that word in the most obvious sense of stability, but it doesn't mean that to the developers. Mm -hmm. So that's why it, you, when you say it's more stable, it's because they don't update that much. So yeah, it probably would be more stable. So like the, the, the like if you have a new application, you're not going to get it though if you want that new application. So like there's a you're you're doing a trade-off whether it's super stable, getting new updates, uh, or not. So like depends on what you want to do. Interesting. So I did try this outside of a virtual box, and I did it while we were reviewing the show because I had just gotten my Dell, you know, nice, and I had to install something on it. And this is before eventually now, of course, it's on Mint XFCE. But I tried this and my noobish tendencies uh, got me into some trouble with the partitioning. The laptop only had one drive in it. So usually when you're going through an installer, it just says, hey, do you want to erase the whole drive and use it? And you click yes, and it builds them all for you. In this case, for whatever reason, it couldn't. It could have something to do with Dell, maybe putting some type of secret partition in there, whatever that they do sometimes for recoveries. I don't know. But I had to go and create my own partitions in there, but apparently didn't save them correctly because by the time I booted into it, it was all kinds of messed up. Now, I've done this hundreds of times. You guys know how many distros I've tried. Yeah. Just weeks. Yeah. So I'm there's something with that installer in that system specifically that didn't jive well, but it may be that you could go install this somewhere else and never have an issue. But I hadn't run into that particular type of problem in a long time, like when I first learned how to create my own partitions in Linux. So I'm not quite sure what kicked that off, but just keep that in mind if you're willing to give it a try to pay special attention to the partitioning system installer that it uses because I ran into a little bit of an issue there. Yep, that's very interesting, and uh, definitely is a good tip. So, but also, a new release. It's actually the first major release in a couple of years for OpenWRT. I am so excited about this, man. Yeah, I am. I am super excited. I, I think this is uh, OpenWRT had some issues a couple of years ago that where they were not getting they were, they were not having development as much as some of the the community members wanted as in the developers of the of the project so there's like there was a split essentially uh, openwrt had a split where some of the developers decided they didn't want to wait anymore and they moved to creating their own called LEDE and or lead and essentially it was a, a competitive project but this what's really great about this is that this new release is also the first release that the LEDE project and the OpenWRT project merge back together. So they've they've nice. cre they've created a whole new structure of how their project's going to work. So that now this version and is in this and moving forward is going to be like the best of both worlds for like all the developers and the users. And uh, it's probably one of the best, if not the best, firmwares for routers. Now imagine being me and I'm sitting here with the beautiful beast where Windows has been nuked off of it. My laptops all run Linux. Windows has been nuked off of it. But then I sit here in the corner of my eye and see this router and I know it doesn't run Linux. And this makes me angry. 
Unfortunately, it's a very expensive router. It's the X1000 <laughs> Nighthawk. So I'm not going to do this to this router, but I am going to get a router because they have a list of compatible routers. So I'm going to pick up one of these routers and play with this before I ruin my current router. But essentially what this allows you to do is run Linux OS on your router. So you've got that open source software in there and replace any of the potential junkware uh, that may be currently on your router. So you can go to their quick start guide, just follow the instructions there, uh, and you can go and check and see which routers are compatible if you're going to pick one up. And this just seems like a really good idea for them security-wise to go to an open source alternative versus having the proprietary option. Yeah, I, nice. I agree completely. And also the, the list of all the compatibility of like the different, the hardware list is really good because you can specifically look for like what you already have like the model number and the brand and everything. So you can just, you can see if you already have it that's supported. And if not, they give you a great list of options that you could choose. Now I must admit, I sort of read this initially with a bit of uh, trepidation and thought, Hmm, BIOS been there before. So me, me flashing anything, me install. And I thought, <laughs> no, hang on a minute, this is just installing software. Yeah. So it should work fine. And I thought, nah, they're not going to have my proprietary router because it comes from the you know the uk's largest isp in uh, in bt and lo and behold you just type in bt underbrand and there they are two three five and three uh, type a's type b's so this could very well work and the thing is i want the latest latest router because it's better than this one so i think what i'll do is i'll buy it from them first so i've got something that will get me out on the internet and then then we'll give this thing a blatter and see if it See if it makes it makes it better. Fantastic. And like one of the things about OpenWRT that's really great is that it gives you a lot more control over what your all your routing system can do. So yeah. you can have different ports uh, open. You, whereas like some ISP, I mean, there are some ISPs in the U.S. that have this whole you're not you're using our router and you're welcome and you you, you can pay us an extra five dollars to use Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that so stuff would really never happen with OpenWRT. Yeah, and one of the really frustrating things, and I keep pointing over here because this blue light in the corner is my is my sorry, it's a router, not a router. But anyway, what yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean that's that's your that's what's your opinion. I mean, you're entitled well, to your it, wrong it's opinion. Got, it's it's got to be a route or a route, I should say, because Chuck Berry didn't sing about Route 66, did he? Wow. Route wow. 66. But I'm anyway. gonna have to go find out who Chuck Berry is first. <laughs> <laughs> so. They don't allow you to change the DNS server. You're stuck with oh, their wow. own DNS server. So you have to go to every piece of equipment in your home and change to open DNS or Google DNS or whatever DNS you want to go to. So I'm assuming going open WRT, I'll just be able to put one set of DNS in there absolutely. and everything will then just work from it. You absolutely can. You can also even do some stuff where you can customize it, where you can switch back and forth pretty easily, which one you want to use. Mm -hmm. This like, seems yeah. like such a fun weekend project. You know, I want to play with a dummy router first just to make sure I understand the install, figure out how everything works. But what a fun project like the Raspberry Pis we're playing with, Zeb, where you could just grab something like a $20 router off eBay that's compatible, mm -hmm. figure it out, play with it, see what mm -hmm. it's capable of, you know, and learn some really awesome things. So here's a really interesting question. Could I put a VPN on it as well as OpenWRT? Or is that asking too much? I think there's actually talks about having a VPN built into w OpenWRT as far as like, uh, maybe not 
I mean, compatibility and integration, but maybe not like running both at the same time. I don't know mm -hmm. if you can do both at the same time. Um, it would probably be better to not use your own home system as a VPN anyway, unless you wanted to get directly get into your system like remotely for to get access to your local files. That would be a good reason for it. But no, I'm, I mean, like you know, um, sticking just sticking a. You, I bought a VPN package. Oh, um, okay. Connecting it so the v, so the the router itself or the the router router is using <laughs> uh, is is using the VPN instead of your direct connection. Yes, you totally can yes. do that. Awesome. We'll have a play with that as well. Nice. So that sounds really, really good. So on to some software news now. And uh, one of my favorite subjects out of the two that seem to be hitting uh, the news at the moment. So last week we gave a, a little bit of love to Flatpaks and what GNOME are doing or GNOME GNOME are doing for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this week it's for um, the snaps to become in the, in the highlights. And what happened is in a post from the Ubuntu blog, there was a list of fresh apps to get your hands on. Um, and there's a, there's a list here of uh, Signal Private Messenger, which I've used. So that'd be quite interesting to have that as a snap. Winds, which is an RS reader and a podcast app. Um, yeah, that one actually looks, really, that one looks really slick. Like I haven't tried mm. it, but it looks good. So hopefully it also nice. works good. Yeah, and, I, and I've only heard of Subsurface because I think, isn't that the one that Linus Torvald uses or yep. wrote or something? Yeah, that, that, I don't know if he wrote it, but I, he, that's the one he does. Uh, you know, he talks about how, how he uses it all the time. Mm -hmm. So, Ryan, what, what else in that list interested you? Well, I love this because they're basically highlighting, you know, all of the various snaps that they've re that they have now every single month. Alan Pope is the one friend of the show who put this blog post out there. Some of the ones I thought were interesting was Whalebird because Mast that's a Mastodon client. Now I have Man, a Mastodon it's a fun account word too with a name yeah. of it. It's just Whalebird. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Whalebird. And I have a Mastodon account, but I don't. I should be using it more, but I just haven't got used to the interface and the web clients kind of, eh, I think that would be neat to download Whalebird and play with that and see if I can get more engaged in Mastodon because it's one of those things I still don't feel like I figured out. I think I'm even in the wrong Mastodon because there's like groups when you sign up and I'm in DOSGeek Social and I see other people are part of DOSGeek Linux Rocks and I'm not quite well, or something there's like a, that. There's a difference. The, the problem is, is the, way, the way Mastodon is built is that it's built in a decentralized system, which is great for privacy and security, but also incredibly confusing. So mm. every single instance of Mastodon is its own separate network that is also possible to federate with the rest of the other networks. So there's a section of the, there's the local timeline, which means just the one you're on, or the federated timeline, which is everything. So if you're on the Linux rocks one, like linuxrocks.online, that, that is a great one because everything, pretty much everything about it is an is a enthusiast for Linux and everybody on there is talking about Linux and it's, it's great. Um, I created my Mastodon account before that existed. So I am on the main one, which is mastodon.social. And you can't switch. You cannot switch. You cannot. You have to create a whole new one. You have to delete the one you have, and ask everybody who's currently following following you, and all of your already messages already sent out. You got to redo those, or it's just a pain. And I've asked them to allow me to, even if you don't let me switch, just let me use, let me look at another timeline from a specific instance, 
and that's also not possible. See, if I had to switch on Twitter, it'd be a big deal because I got 5,200 people there. Mastodon is going to be a huge deal with me because I have 10 followers. And what am I going to do with those 10 followers? I'll lose them all. Well, I guess now's the time to switch. Well, the problem is, is I, I don't, it's mainly that setup of all the things that I've marketed when I talk about Mastodon. You put it, it's just like once you set it up, I, I don't even need to switch. I just want to be able to load another instance, which you can't, you can't do that either. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's got so much potential, but it also, like having issues with it, it you know, it makes sense. That's a, that's such a instead of tweet they put toot because it, it's really <laughs> stupid. Yeah, any, any. I don't want to be like, oh, I've been tooting all day. Yeah, exactly. I've been tooting to my friends, like, <laughs> come on, come up with something better than that, please. Well, I'll tell you the other thing on here that caught my attention, Zeb, is Dwarf Fortress, and the only reason it caught my attention because I would never play that game particularly. It just doesn't look like my thing, but it's pixelated, and I just want to try somehow <laughs> to trick you into playing it. Well, no, because you're just giving it. You're just giving the game away. Now, what you should have said was, "I hey, said you need to go and War Fortress. It's absolutely awesome. You'll love it." Yeah. And, and then by you saying you'll love it, I would have known that I'm being tricked. Yeah, you'd have been like, "Oh, I'm being duped." But now that mm-hmm. I've told you that I don't think you'll run it, just despite me, you should run it, love it, and tell us all about it. <laughs> exactly. That's how you do yeah. it. Uh, you know. It looks like a mud game to me, the old mud style games where you type in the text and then it moves, but there's a little bit of pixelated graphics there. I don't know. So anything yeah. on the list catch your attention, Michael? Uh, well, yes, I think that uh, Zulip is an interesting chat client that I'm looking forward to trying out. And um, also, I, I, I want to try out Wellbird for the purpose of its name, Wellbird. Ooh, uh, I could be your one friend on Zulip. We could chat together. We could, yes, we could totally test it out. We should test it out. Um, How many more chat clients do we need? <laughs> it depends on what it integrates with and things like that. If it has support for like, like how Pigeon has support for like everything, including Telegram, stuff like that. But I mean, as long as it's doing that and it doesn't really matter what your network is, I think, you know, more the merrier. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is kind of getting ridiculous. You're, you got a good point. All right. So something near and dear to my heart, of course, is the i3 tiling manager which you can also use as your desktop environment and there was an opinion article this week that i just couldn't pass up because it's titled i3 tiling window manager five reasons it makes linux better think about that for a second it makes linux even better by itself there so this was an opinion article of course and they talk about all of the great things that i3 tiling manager can bring to you. Now I see more and more people in our telegram group talking about using i3 and I'm getting more people coming over to the i3 prodigy team, which I absolutely love because people are seeing the the absolute beauty that is i3 because while it's a minimalist desktop, you can rice it, which is what they call customize this thing to the absolute extreme and make it the most gorgeous thing out there if you want. You can add notifications. You can add all these tools. It is a complete kind of just foundation of which you can build anything you want off of. So what do you guys think? Have I convinced? I know Michael used to use i3 and Zeb. No? Well, I'm just wondering, you've got this Ryzen 2700X Mm -hmm. processor. You've got a Vega 64 graphics card. And you've got 280 text windows on your desktop. <laughs> <laughs> well, well see, I, I3 can work with why? any window. So. 
Yeah, it works with any window. It's not just a text window. So, for instance, if you're gaming in i3, you know, you have all kinds of shortcut capabilities there. But the main thing is being able to organize your workspaces and your work, your actual uh, monitor itself. So Mm -hmm. to kind of put this in perspective, I could have an IDE up, which maybe I'm programming in. I could have a YouTube video up in this corner. And down at the bottom, I could have a connection to a server through a terminal. Over on this screen or in a different workspace if I wanted, I could have a game running that I'm playing over here or whatever you want to do. But I can move those between the workspaces with a simple keyboard shortcut and move them to different workspaces, move them to different monitors. I can even set it up so that very easily within the script, all those programs automatically open as soon as I boot in their specific corners that I want them and in the workspaces that I want them in as well. So I can have a social media workspace, I can have a gaming workspace, and all the programs I need automatically open the second I jump in. That's some of the cool things you can do with i3. Yeah, and I actually would say that uh, I... I'll go ahead and let you know that I used to use i3 and I also used to use Xmonad and I've currently set up another machine right now that has i3 on it. Nice. And, You're coming back to the i3 family. Uh, uh, well, no. Plasma will still hold me, but uh, i3 has many benefits that I couldn't ignore, especially the whole minimalism and the incredible lightweightness of it. And I, I decided to use that because I needed to use as little resources as possible for the machine because I wanted to make a, a very extensive uh, usage of the like use the, the multi applications and the rendering and the things like that it's going to do to be the most important piece and i3 is a great solution for that kind of experience um, mm-hmm. so I, I think that i3 is quite quite good in many cases um, and if you you should definitely try to find a, a good config for your shortcuts because uh, they're not the the default ones are a little weird mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. So, so basically, what you're saying is that you can move your terminal window from one screen to another, and then back again <laughs> to another. Zeb, so you're not, you're not, you're not painting this picture perfect here. And then back again. Oh, look now, and now it's actually gone tiled for that whole half of the monitor. Um, and back again. So, for the for the audio is- listeners, there Zeb is demonstrating in, in his ba- the, the monitor in the behind him <laughs> how to move around a, a window with your mouse. So just to show that uh, Ryan might not really fully grasp the answer. I can, I can do it with a mouse. Look, it's just working great. Oh, my gosh. Zeb. <laughs> you can imagine not having to use the mouse and you could stay on the keyboard. How yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is the whole Vim versus like G-Edit conversation, right? The Vim takes a while to learn the keystrokes, but once you learn it, it's way faster than anything you could do in a GUI-based version. And As soon as you figure out how to exit it, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, a good point <clears throat> exclamation mark q is that how you quit wait no isn't it full colon wq we're not i'm not well, that's anyway moving on <laughs> wait yeah, we're not good vim what? users are we you know I'm, I'm not a vim user i i don't actually use vim or emacs so what do you on use the X, it's gone what do you use michael i'm curious now i use sublime text for my editing really yeah that's yeah. what i used to for yeah. the most part yeah. I, it, it's it's very featureful. It's also it looks good and it doesn't require a terminal. Yeah, there's there benefits go. to the terminal, but not necessarily the you know what you always need kind of thing. So unfortunately, we can't um, we can't sway we can't sway Zeb to our our side on the tiling mm. window managers. It's a shame. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But maybe we could sway him to try out Sway 1.0 
Well, it's an mm. alpha, but maybe so. Well, actually, Zeb is is a is a fan of out, trying out alpha. So maybe mm-hmm. you would like to give it a shot to try out the the new i three ish window manager for Waylon. Yeah, I mean Zeb, listen, all of the same amazing features I just told you about, but I know you, and I know we weren't going to get you with i three. You're a Waylon lover. You want to be in Waylon full time. So, Team Green doesn't work with Nvidia. You just use the in, in, use the Intel version. It's okay. Yeah, and you don't you don't need you don't need extensive graphics to run Italian Window Manager. You're fine. I mentioned Wayland, and you asked, "Does it work with Nvidia?" Of course not. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's getting better. The Nvidia support is getting better for Wayland, but this is basically Sway is bringing the i3 Window Manager desktop environment to Wayland. And I think that's pretty exciting. And this is getting a ton of support. People are very excited about this because i3, when there's fans of i3, when you become a fan of i3, you stay a fan of i3 and it's just, you just love it. And they have 273 changes that they've put into this latest alpha release with 21 contributors. I think they have more contributors than a lot of some of these major desktop Mm -hmm. environments we talk about. 21 contributors out there making this work. That's quite a lot. in there. Yeah, that's quite a lot. And also, they're part of the WL Roots uh, work that they're that Sway is working with, together with other window managers that are also working on Wayland support. So they're doing the WL Roots as a as a collaborative effort to make support. And other DEs are looking into using WL Roots as as well for their Wayland support. So that's like a, a fantastic the the amount of effort. When I first heard that Sway was being made. I was I was thinking, yeah, okay, it's Wayland, so we'll see what happens. But the amount of effort is being put into it, and it, it's it's very impressive. Yep. So there's some cool features in here: interactive move and resize of floating windows, scratch pad support, multiple G, uh, GPU support in here, virtual keyboard support, i3 compatible IPC events, all kinds of cool things that you would expect from an i3 environment, but now in Sway. So Wayland becomes the big default. I think i3, Some I've heard rumors that i3 is not interested in rewriting their version for Wayland. So there really wasn't yeah. an option but to create a new yeah. kind of version for Wayland. That's what Sway, that's what the reason why Sway was made was that was the reason why the i3 was fine with Xorg. So apparently they're not, they don't have any intention. Okay. So now on a, a subject that's going to be very opinionated, um, Never. But also, also leaves me a bit cold. But I think we, we you know, um, and and that's only because I'm 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 a, I'm a user, not a tinkerer. And if something doesn't work for me, I just go next and go and find something that does. <laughs> but this, but this is all about theming and GTK plus three themes and CSS and borders and windows and all that technical stuff that goes on in the background. Now, apparently, there's a guy called Sam Hewitt who wrote an interesting blog regarding theming and the issues it creates um, and essentially making the case that themes are slowing down the progress in usability due to visual fragmentation. Now, I'm assuming he's making that statement because you can get QT, you can get GTK3. Every time you go up to GTK4, maybe three is going to break and two broke. So, why is this such an outrageous statement to make? What's wrong with it? So the issue with this particular case is uh, Sam, Samuel e. Hewitt is also like very into the. Th- he's he's been a part of theming. He's he's done. He's a designer who's done a lot of work on theming and icons and things like that. 
And so he is very, you know, experienced with this particular topic. But the the issue is kind of like a a, a layer on top like approach that currently that GNOME has. Uh, the, speaking of which, is specifically to GTK. And GTK has a lot of uh, things that it kind of relies on things to exist. And when something removes is removed, then you know the, the people who make the themes deal with these massive breakpoints. And mm-hmm. there are sometimes where someone will have a theme that they are expecting a certain feature to exist, and then someone else will make will use that theme as a as a like a a base point to, to instead of making their entire whole new system, they could use the existing theme as their own base point for that theme. But what if something from the existing theme is removed? Then the derivative theme create gets a problem like a breakpoint because there's no mm-hmm. real API for GTK theming. GTK theming is built on a CSS system and like a, a like a custom CSS system even. So doing overwrites could actually break certain features of various different toolkit toolkit level stuff because it's just it it's not it wasn't really intended to be as customizable as people want it to be. And that's kind of what's creating this problem. Well, I think it's interesting because what we're talking about here is he's recommending the potential of ending the customization of by these themes, by ending it, and that it would make it easier on everybody. It would make but it easier to, on the developers of, of GNOME, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, that's <laughs> very good. Yeah, actually, that's the, that's the clarifying point there. It would make it easier on the developers. You wouldn't have as many reliability issues and things that was the case. Now he says at the beginning that prior themes were just configuration files that would tweak minor details. Today, they basically have a lot more uh, capability of being custom style sheets and overriding the Mm -hmm. toolkit level style sheets of the program itself, thus creating breaks. And what happens then is the developer now has to go in and get all these support tickets because you're using this theme that broke their style sheet and it's not working with the app correctly. Maybe you can't see the font. Maybe you can't see the menu, something like that's going on. And now they're having the support fixing the theme as well. But I don't like the alternative of thinking no customization theming exists out there because that's Linux. I mean, why don't we just call it Apple then if you don't want to customize it? Well, mm-hmm. the the issue is like there there is a solution. It's not a very easy solution, and it would also it would require effort on both the GNOME team and also on the developers of themes. Uh, those those would have to deal the pretty big rewrites and stuff. And that's to create an API for theming inside of the GTK system and inside of GNOME. Um, but isn't but that, this something similar to what Juno? is doing and what they're doing with the app store they're not saying you can't make your own apps they're not saying you can't do your own theming but you have to stay within this specific framework so that all of the apps have the same look and feel yes you can make them look different in your own way you can change the colors however you want but the basic shell that you work with Mm -hmm. is what he's he's proposing or have I got the wrong end of the stick? Well, he's proposing the different options. He's not really specifically saying which option should be done. He's just giving the options that could be done. And Mm -hmm. one of the options that could be done is to remove the ability to have themes entirely. Uh, Because the way that the GNOME is built, it uses the CSS and the style sheet system, which is built from web design and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. 
And the, one of the things about web design in CSS is that it allows overwrites by just use adding extra flags to overwrite something. And it's, right. it's a very powerful thing for the web, but it's not that good for a DE in your entire system. Because you don't because if someone overwrites something and then someone else overwrites another thing, which one is it supposed to pay attention to? So mm-hmm. that creates this other like which one is loaded first cre- depends on which one makes get gets attention. So if by one of them have an overwrite for the exact same thing and one is loaded first and it works and then the, and then the next time you boot it, the other one is loaded first, it won't work because so it's just it's just an issue of like a weird clunkiness of using CSS as a part of your DE. It's just not necessarily going to be the best option. Um, so the API system, in my opinion, would be the be- would be the, probably the best overall option, but it would take a long time to build. You mean creating a standard in Linux? Come on, there's going to be no standards here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, so it's creating what... a GNOME standard. Would, they're, they're happy to make standards. They just, want you, they just don't want you to not use what they tell you to use, <laughs> apparently. So I think ultimately what he wanted to do was to get you know, people talking about this and discussing yeah. various ideas. Because um, mm-hmm. his final idea for me is the sort of like the typical politician's answer. Um, his final suggestion is to have some sort of framework that allows for st- custom style sheets that doesn't involve overriding the toolkit inherent or inherit visuals. Mm-hmm. Now, how loose and woolly is some sort of framework? <laughs> well, to be, to be fair, I agree. That sounds like me talking to my team. I want some kind of program thingy that does this. Do it. Yeah. Or is it just a set of words to get people thinking, well, actually, do you know what? He's got an idea there because we could do this, this, and this, or we could do that, that, and that. It's, it's, it's a good point to make that, it's, that he's not really giving an option, but he really can't give an option because it is not his place to do that, to provide the solution. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's so many different moving parts that were required to make this work. So if they were to make an API or a framework, it would be so much effort that there would be a requirement between, on both sides and maybe even like toolkit application developers to be a part of that discussion. So I think what he's saying is broad because it kind of needs to be broad. You know... I, I think it's interesting because it's not just about slowing down developers, but it's about the visual fragmentation issues that you can experience in Linux that he mentions as well. I like that he brought up the topic. He says he realizes this would kill some of his own projects by making this change, but he's okay with that if it means we have easier time for developers and a more complete visual experience when getting into the desktops. With that said, this hasn't really been an issue for me. Like I, I change themes and at times I've seen where I've installed some arbitrary theme and Caden live no longer shows the text in the menus. And then I just switch the theme and move on. Is this really a big deal? I mean, yeah. it is That's kind of, it's, it's not a big deal in the sense of like the user side, as long as they get what they want. But the, the big deal is that if this was removed, then all the distros that use GNOME as their base that have customizations, which is everything. Uh, because Ubuntu, Pop OS, and Fedora, even Fedora, which is a part of like that has this that has overlap of the GNOME developers, even Fedora makes changes to the default because the default of GNOME is not very good. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I, I get that it would be a big deal if they went with his recommendation. I don't think it would. It's a big deal what we're dealing with as far as visual fragmentation is. I don't. I don't view Linux as horribly visually fragmented, but maybe I'm just biased because I love it. 
Well, I mean, it's, it's and you could different levels. You could say it's visually fragmented because of all the different DEs and the different you know implementations of how the workflows are made and stuff like. You could argue that too. So, like, I guess there's kind of a little bit there. You know who I would never argue with, Michael? Who's that? Me? Not you, because that's too easy to argue oh, okay. with you. Okay. <laughs> but Veronix. Oh, the other Michael. Okay. Yeah, the other Michael <laughs> is a friend of our show. We've had him on before. He is an amazing wealth of information. He also has toys that completely destroy any toy that I have, and I try to have the greatest toys. <laughs> and I'm like Joker and Batman. How does he get all these wonderful toys? And he has tons of them. I just want to get invited to his home and just like, okay, Michael, leave for six hours and let me put something together because he has so many <laughs> CPUs and GPUs and all of this beautiful stuff. So he's done another round of 100-plus benchmarks. So he's run over 100 benchmarks to come to a view on the current, not the ones that are future to be released, but the current Intel and AMD CPUs that are out today using Linux to f- see which one reigns supreme. Now, Michael... Which one of these results interested you? Was it the CPUs he used? Were you looking right away for the Threadripper in there just to see where it's at? Because it's Threadripper. Yeah, well, I mean, Threadripper is very important <laughs> to uh, to my, my opinions of like whether I'm interested in like the bench- benchmarks because one, it rips threads, and two, mm. uh, it's fun to say. Indeed. <laughs> Zeb, you don't have a Threadripper. I assume you're going to have one soon with me um as long as i can use it with a an nvidia 1080 oh gosh that team green again or an 1180 maybe um (laughs) i totally am gobsmacked by the amount of information that this guy comes out with um, and how clever he is and and what he knows but it leaves me totally cold purely because I haven't got a clue what he's talking about. I can look at the numbers <laughs> and then I have to look at the charts and go, hang on a minute, that one's big. Oh, hang on. You've got to be smaller on this chart to be better. It's, it's just right. confusing. And the only thing I like about it is when he then finally sums it up, a bit like you've done here. And he said, well, the thread rippers are really, really good. And AMD are really catching up, but sorry, boys, the I nine is probably the best at the moment. Yeah, un- unfortunately, you can see in the in the results, the benchmark results, the i9s 7960X and 7980XE, very expensive CPUs, mind you, mm-hmm. tended to dominate in there. Now, there were points in the various benchmarks where the Threadripper reigned supreme, um, and so it just depends on the tasks that you're doing mm-hmm. there. And certainly yeah. the new Threadrippers... This is not even going to be a contest. They wipe uh, the floor with them, yeah. They're going to wipe the floor with everything out there Intel has, at least based on what we know today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say he also only had the Ryzen 7 2700X. Sorry, Michael, or 2700. Sorry, Michael, I have the 2700X, which gives me just a little bit more performance, and I think you're going to have to catch up to me now and get one of those. That's okay. <laughs> He's coming on tomorrow, and you won't have the X anymore. <laughs> Of course, he does have a Threadripper, which makes me insanely jealous because I want one. So this mm-hmm. wasn't all the Threadrippers, just the 1950X that he tried here. And, you know, it, it's just what Pharonix does gives you tons of interesting information to make decisions on the, the you know, hardware that you're using and the performance you can get out of it. 
none of this, like I said, depending on the type of benchmark and the work you're doing, you'll see them switch between the Threadripper and the i9. Ultimately, what you can see is we have a real competition on our hands between Intel and AMD for the first time in I don't know what, 10 years, 15 years. So that's pretty oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's much better. Be a good thing for us, the end user. Yeah. Yep. And I'm looking forward to Team Red. Yeah. <laughs> but also, are we looking forward to the year of the Linux desktop? Oh, no, not again. Nobody wants to hear the year of the Linux desktop, Michael. Well, yes, a lot of people hate that term, but uh, there's an, an interesting post made about uh, whether Chromebooks make the year of the Linux desktop be, is 2018 be that, thanks but to the he, Christine. Was he specifically talking, sorry, Michael, was he specifically talking about it being the year of the Linux desktop? Not, a, not really, but he's talking about how important it is to the Linux, to Linux itself by because Chromebook providing the crustini support for the linux apps inside of chromebooks is a much like it has the potential to be a game changer because mm -hmm. chromebooks already have a you know big they have a big push now because of the like they're 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 cheap they're easy to use most of the time and they also have like support contracts and stuff with like schools and things like that so like uh as far as the years the this desktop i mean we've already if you if you want to count chromebooks anyway then when that's already happened anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, th this is, I, I'm not a fan of Google stuff. You guys know that. Uh, because it's just a big privacy invasive pile of junk on top of Linux generally is what they do. Like Android, for instance. Yes, so, I agree. Pure Android's great, but Google stuff on top of it, not so great. But with that being said, if we're talking about wanting to see Linux grow, the Chromebook has done incredible things as the Android phone has done for raising awareness of Linux. The Chromebook, I remember on Black Friday last year that we were sitting there, there were crowds of people huddling around all the Chromebooks where they, you know, they cut the plastic and they open it up and everyone, you don't know about this, Zeb, but Americans were kind of crazy. And uh, when we want to save $10, we'll even like jump on each other and beat each other up because $10 <laughs> is $10. And so there's these deals on Black Friday and they're on Chromebooks. They also had Windows S laptops out there as well. No crowds, nobody lined up to get them. Chromebooks, everybody was lined up around to get to the Chromebooks. I found this fascinating, and so I started asking people online, why are you guys going after the Chromebook? And they said, oh, our school requires it. It showed me a school list that showed the Chromebook was required for the school. Wow. So because of this, now you have a whole generation of kids. And so I looked up the statistics. In 2016, Chrome OS managed to grow to 58% of the market in the U.S. for K-12, K-12. Wow. So that means that they took the entire market away from Mac OS, Apple OS, and Microsoft previously was at 48%. So now you have this laptop that has taken over the vast majority of education. The kids are going to be using it from a young age. That's what they're going to be used to. Now Linux apps are going to be enabled on it. So these kids are going to start getting used to open source free software and even to enable the options within your Chromebook to download the software, because you know the kids are going to want to put Steam on it, you have to use the terminal some. So they're going to start getting used to this and interacting with it. And I think that's going to be huge for Linux in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I haven't bought a Chromebook yet, but it's always one of those things you think in the back of the mind, really, I should be getting this because this is what probably my grandchildren are going to be using. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're going to have to want to come and get some advice from Gramps and he's not going to know what on earth he's going on. So, and, and, and you can, the thing I like about the Chromebooks is you can go out there and buy a $150 Chromebook. 
Yep. Well, you can go out there, and I think was it like you did? You spent over five hundred dollars on the Samsung one. Uh, my wife listens to this podcast. Please don't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> it was two hundred dollars, Zeb. I thought I thought Rocco lent you the other three. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Thanks, right. Zeb. Yeah. So yeah, you you know you can you can fill your boots with what type of Chromebook what you want, but ostensibly they do the same thing. They just give you quick, easy access. To, to what most people want nowadays, which is the internet and where most kids do their homework. They just, they just Google, Google the answers. Yep. You can, you can fill your boots with Chromebook and use it uh, for the, with learning the terminal using the Crossini Linux apps to fill your brains. Oh, I like what you did there, Michael. That was beautiful, Sounds sir. Good. Sounds good. So you mentioned earlier that they, they're, they're starting to be maybe installing steam on it. So I'm wondering if they'll be installing the new Steam 64-bit clients that, that might be coming out soon. Now, I read this and I immediately went, yeah, this is going to be great. Finally, we get a 64-bit um, you know, operating system or Steam client for my 64-bit computer. I've not got to worry about any 32-bit dependencies or having to get the 32-bit NVIDIA drivers. Otherwise, it comes up with some weird Steam UI error. <laughs> And then Michael shot me in the in, in the foot and went, no, that's not going to happen because there's too many 32-bit games out there. So yeah. explain a bit better, Michael, why this is going to be good news. Well, this is going to be good because it makes the developers have more incentive to go to 64-bit games uh, development because like, essentially because a lot of games are focused with Windows first for the PC instead of Linux first like they should be, uh, they are using the 60 the 32 bit most of the time because windows is still pretty much stuck on 32 bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can get a 64 bit machine in windows, but the vast majority of applications still in windows are 32 bit. So the developers of games also do the same thing. And this, because valve is getting behind the push to 64, it makes it so that the, there's incentive for developers to think about making their games to be 64 bit so that the, the resources and the performance and stuff can be that much better. Nice. So this will be goodness in the future. And it's, I love that, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago, Steam's OS actually, you know, getting mm -hmm. updated. Now they're looking at updating their client to be 64 bit. And we know they always have great support for Linux. So we'll know we'll get that 64 bit version out there. So there you go. I mean, everything Steam and Valve does is gold to me because they love Linux. Yeah, they're they're making like without without Steam and Valve, Valve making Steam supported on Linux, uh, we wouldn't have the like the actual ability to be at Linux Linux gamers at this point because yep. like we used to have maybe before Steam came around we had maybe Tux twenty Cart. yeah we had Tuxcart and Zanotic <laughs> and some, we had a couple good games there but they were there was not that many of them but now we have thousands so uh, even though even if there's something that Valve does that I'm not a fan of. I'm still a fan of Valve for bringing gaming to Linux. There you go. Well, a game you can check out on Steam is TO4 Tactical Operations because it's coming to Linux. And you know what Linux needs? More first-person shooters. Now, I need you guys to go out and buy this game right now. Except you don't have to because it's completely free. How do you like them apples? I am totally going to buy it then. Yes. So <laughs> this game is coming to Linux. It will be... Unfortunately, though, not fully supported on Linux. They're basically, the developers are making a Linux version. 
but they're prioritizing the Windows version, which makes sense from a business standpoint. Let's just be honest that Windows has the primary amount of gamers on it. How dare supposedly. you? You're not going to get my my nothing money. <laughs> okay, but they will. are you at will. least taking the effort to put a Linux client out there, and they will see how things go. If they get enough people jumping into the free game that I mentioned is free. I will jump um, in then then they will maybe add more support into the Linux version. So, you know, there is sometimes that rumor that Linux people are cheap or won't pay for things. And I'm sure being free, they're going to have some additional packages and things that you can buy loot to crates. customize your character, loot crates or whatever. But I don't know about you. I actually spend more money probably on games that are don't keep charging me than games that attempt to charge me every little uh, mm-hmm. place you go. Actually, so out of like, principle, mm-hmm. if, if they don't charge me that much in the first place and they don't charge me like all the time with new things, all like here's this new DLC that's the, the same cost as the game itself, like that kind of thing. Is If they don't do that, then I would happily send, give them money for, you know, just being good, you know, good, right. good citizens of the gaming world. Plus, I realize it costs a lot of money to run servers like this. They're gonna, This is a multiplayer first-person shooter, so you're going to go in there. This isn't free for them. Uh, but certainly they're going to have little things that you could probably purchase as long as it's not like a pay to win type thing or like yeah. what EA does to everything and ruin stuff. As long as it's not like that, uh, I'm good. As long as it's just visual stuff and you don't have to, uh, generally I will definitely throw them support, but go check it out. It looks pretty good. It's kind of a, it's unreal engine. It's kind of a based on CSGO ish to me. Some of the like levels and environments look like CSGO, which isn't the most advanced graphics in the world, but they're not bad. You know, they've <laughs> aged well. Yeah. And then there were some environments that were had some very beautiful looking elements to them that are, I think are better than CSGO. So it's at least CSGO-ish style graphics and it's a first person shooter. And I always love playing those games unless, you know, Rocco's in it and he picks <laughs> a uh, sniper and hides in a corner. Other than that, I love those games. Rocco with a sniper? No way. <laughs> So now we're into the tips and tricks of the week. Michael, what do you yeah. got for us? So my my tip this week is for a file manager that is run on the command line, and that is Ranger. And Ranger nice. is a fantastically super fast, awesome file manager that if you if you if you use if you prefer the command line or terminal, then you should definitely try out Ranger. And if you don't, you might find some benefits of it just because of the, the speed it has and the different uh, customization options it has as well. There's this one feature, uh, I can't remember the name of the, it's like it's like launch something, I, I don't remember. But there's a feature where it has where it automatically detects the, like you just click the file, you want to open the file, you don't have to choose like what it is. It'll detect what that file would normally be and you'll see what your default application set is for that and it will launch it for you automatically. So that kind of thing is great. And also even if you don't like to use the command line, it does support the mouse interaction. So it's basically like a, a very fast text-based file manager you could use regardless. Yeah, it's very cool. It does automatically, like if you go in your pictures folder and I clicked on one of the pictures, just it's very fast, you know, to scroll down and get to where you want and automatically launch GIMP and open the picture up if I wanted to make changes to it. Uh, it's definitely something that a lot of uh, window manager, tiling manager individuals like to use Ranger a lot. So awesome i3 people, Xmonad, they'll use Ranger. They'll talk it up because, you know, we like, as Zeb said, to live in the terminal a little bit. Live a little in the terminal. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I actually checked this out and it is really, really quick and and very easy to navigate. So, um 
although it's a terminal application and isn't something that I would necessarily look at, now I know that it's there, I think it's probably going to become part of my stock install. Because as you say, Ryan, with your i3, you're always on the keyboard. So sometimes it's going to be just easier to just quickly type the word Ranger, go and find the files I want, rather than come out of there, go and find where my files is, open up the files, go to the directory. By the time I'd done all that, you could have done all the keystrokes and found the particular file you wanted so sometimes they have they do have they do have good uses now talking about finding files that are useful um our our software spotlight this week is going to be um a program called system logs now here on destination linux we are um or we try to be great exponents of helping developers out as much as possible with what's gone wrong with your particular bug and not just say it don't work because that doesn't help. That doesn't help anybody, but anybody who's been in Linux for a while will know that sometimes trying to debug. um, And I can't even remember the name of the file. Is it D message or something? D message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find a particular piece of information in there is like, you know, you get halfway through the file and I'm falling falling asleep. It's so boring. (laughs) To find out that there's actually a GUI available where you can then do a nice, simple control F and find what it is you're looking for and not have to try and master grep or awk commands. I think this is going to be really, really good. So have either of you guys used system logs or any of the others that we're going to name in a moment? Oh, yeah, I've used a few of them. And GUI based logs viewers are much, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're really good for like an easier approach to finding out all the different things because it also has a built-in like search searchability, scanability, things like that. Um, most of these are, it's, especially if you are familiar with the command line, you're not really comfortable with it. These are a much better way to, to get these, uh, to get the data that you want to get to the developers to help you out. Yeah, it frustrated me because I wasn't really aware of the GUI options. I guess I just never looked. And um, I've always been doing the manual route. And then when we were doing this tips and tricks thing, I saw GNOME logs in there. And I went and I clicked in Linux Mint and went to logs. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) All these organized logs right here instead of trying to scan through a terminal reading that text, which I'm sure is great and easy for system admins, but not so much for me. Mm-hmm. So there's GNOME logs, log file viewer, uh, which Zeb mentioned, uh, command line, D message, and K system log. Now I'm going to go out on a whim here and say Michael uses K system log. Why would you assume something so yes? Because <laughs> <laughs> it has K in it. So, yeah, I use these. I think it makes it much easier. So there are GUI-based logs. I just figured that if I use the GUI-based log, it wouldn't have my specific error messages that I needed or something. I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm going to be using them now going forward. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that definitely makes the average user's life a lot easier. So you've now not got an excuse not to file those bugs because you can now use these GUI-based systems to, to help you gather the information. There you go. So, wow, that's another episode over. That went yep. really quick and uh, thoroughly enjoyable it was too. But but as usual, um, we here at, at Destination Linux are, are doing this just for you guys. 
Um, we get a lot of fun making it and we get a lot of fun like researching the art- articles that Ryan brings out and Michael's having an absolute dream of uh, editing it all for us. So <laughs> It's um, amazing. Yeah, so so it's really good, but you do need to keep letting us know um, what it is that you want to see. So, um, Ryan, we'll have a little message from you first, if we can. Yeah, so big thank you to each and every one of you, echoing what Zeb said there, for supporting, watching us, if you watch us on YouTube, listening to us, if you listen to us as a podcast. Um, we appreciate all of the continued support. And of course, as Zeb usually says, you can reach us at the comments at destinationlinux.org. So shoot us an email. Tell us some ways that you use Linux. Tell us if you like the show. Tell us if there's something you want changed about the show. We we do this for you guys in the community. The community has been incredible to us, especially the last couple of weeks when we needed it most. So we appreciate all of that. And Michael, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You need to like that smash button. <laughs> and uh, also subscribe if you haven't. And uh, I do all that, all that good stuff. Comment in the, in the, you send us comments on social media or an email, as, as, as Zeb said. What uh, we should totally talk about the, the rating systems that we need to, we, we would benefit from if you would just go into your, your favorite podcast app or just three of the ones that you can actually do it in uh, Stitcher, <laughs> Podcast Republic, and iTunes, and just give us a, a rating there. And uh, of course, I mean, feel free to give us five stars if you'd like to. And that would help us get you know, the word out about the uh, the podcast. Excellent. So, everybody, have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as meaningful as the destination. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Destination Linux podcast. Come on, browser. Okay, Michael. Thank you, browser. You're welcome, sir. It's perfect. This is the new Firefox add-on. I talk back to you and watch you and track everything you're doing. I believe it. Would you like to learn about the Kardashians today? Would I? (laughs) I mean, every week, Zeb, when you log in to see the episode and see what we're going to talk about, it's there. You don't have to guess whether I've done it or it's going to be there on time. Every episode is written. It's on time. It's there with all of the details that you need. If only we could find a video editor like that. (laughs) I would just like to point out that uh, this is the post show with the patrons and the audio is being recorded. Yeah, sure it is, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, we'll believe it when we see it, okay? Yes, I I will prove it. But hey, I thought the I thought the little silent movie was funny. Thank you. Yes, you I, I did a great job on that. Yeah, you took a bad situation, meaning your lack of skill in recording, and you turned it. You turned that lemon into lemonade. So good job. Thanks. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's so sweet of you. Uh, you're welcome, man. I do it Thank all for you. you. But it worked better than what you're doing if it's screwing up our recording in the middle. Zoom is screwing up the recording, not me. Yes, but I'm saying if it keeps doing that, then maybe we should go back to that method. You shut your face.
<laughs> Payback. You shut your face. <laughs>